Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's episode is the features editor of Eurogamer, Christian Donlan. Man, I'm a big fan of Christian Donlan. Um, he is easily one of my favorite video game writers. Uh, and as you can sort of tell from the, the chat and the length of the episode, we, we got on famously and there's a lot of tangents, you know, Christian doesn't, doesn't disappoint. Um, it's just a wonderful chat. I was really excited to talk to Christian and, uh, and it was as good as I had, I had anticipated. It's, it's brilliant. Um, I could get, again, a bit of admin news up front. Now, one of the things I wanted to do when I started this show, one of the kind of promises I made internally was that I was never going to miss a week, right? No matter what, I was never going to miss uh, an episode. Every week without fail, there would be a, a new episode. And I have, I've, I've done that all the, way, um, all the way through the start. And I'm not going to start doing it now. Um, instead, I'm going to miss a whole month. <laughs> uh, so there will be a new episode next week. Uh, Jolie Menzel, who's the narrative um, director for the new South Park game, is on the show next week. Very exciting. Um, but then there will be no episodes in October. No more episodes at all. Um, there are several reasons for this. The main reasons being I just... I literally do not have the, the time um i have two really big projects that i'm working on that will be taking place uh, in october uh, and also i'm moving house so i'll be without internet for a few days so it's just in terms of uh just scheduling and organizing and uploading and editing i just i have no time in october whatsoever uh so sorry about that like sorry to disappoint anyone but um I think, you know, there's a massive back catalog. I just hit 100 episodes. You've got 102, well, it's 108 altogether, episodes to go back uh, and listen back on. I really would highly encourage people to do that. There is some really amazing chats. And I know, like, for a lot of people, they may not even have kept up. You know, a lot of people speak to me and say, oh, I'm still, like, four or five episodes behind. So here's the chance to get everybody back on a on a level playing field. So, yeah, sorry about that, but, you know, Sorry, I'm not that sorry. Uh, you know, this show doesn't cost you anything. Uh, unless you contribute to the Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints, where any and all donations are very gratefully received and go back into making the show as good as it possibly can be. Um, also, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpointshow on Twitter or it's checkpointspodcast on Facebook. Please do follow the show. Give it a like. Uh, I can't promise any kind of witty banter. Um, but it makes me feel good and also please do tweet about the show tell your friends rate and review on itunes it really helps kind of spread the word and get more people listening you know i've had some really good guests over the past well the past 102 episodes um but you know occasionally i'll have a guest on like someone like tim shaver or arthur geese that obviously have a, a kind of an established following and i get loads of new people saying oh my god i had no idea this show existed this is brilliant i love this um, which only goes to further kind of fuel my fervor asking people to share the show and rate and review it because I know there are lots of people out there who would love the show who may never have heard of it. 
Okay, well that'll do for an intro. Thanks so much for um, downloading the show. I hope you enjoy it. Please subscribe. I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. That's pretty much it. Uh, so let's let's begin, shall we? Let's do the formal introduction. Yes, yes. Cool. Uh, yes. Okay, so Christian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Hello, um, my name's Chris Donlan, and I am... I've got to remember my job title now. This sounds like I don't care, and I actually care very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am a features editor at Eurogamer. Okay, good, good. You are, I think, Christian, probably one of the most referenced writers on the show. Certainly from my point of view, I'm, I'm constantly referring <laughs> to things that you've written. Because you write like really that, good, interesting things. That massive jerk, Donald. Uh, <laughs> that's how it feels. Um, well, that's nice. To, I think that's nice to hear. That's no, great. it is, it is. Because it's often because you have... You have uh, very unique spins on things that you know don't often get um written about it very much in in video game press like in particular there's two things you, you wrote a thing about virginia and how narratives can be interactive even a film is interactive in its own way and you compared hearthstone to snooker and I've, i think i've referenced both of those things like at least 10 <laughs> times over the course of the, the podcast history I can't remember the Hearthstone snooker thing at all. Oh, that, God, maybe it wasn't you. Wouldn't that be terrible? I've just I think that, that sounds more like John Bedford, a colleague of mine than me. Um, no, I'm, I'm going to edit all this, eh? I'm not going to allow myself to, to look a fool. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to. I don't, no, wasn't no, it's up. fine, it's I was fine. very much uh, just not wanting to, uh, to steal someone. I think I remember the Virginia piece. I think, like, uh, one thing I should probably say is... Um, I'm allowed to write whatever I want at Eurogamer, and that really means that I I have a sort of an unfair advantage for writing about odd things. I'm allowed to write about odd things. If when I was a freelancer, I wasn't allowed to write about sort of the random thoughts I had on the bus in the morning as much because you have to then pitch it and kind of all that stuff. Whereas I can just go in and do it. So it's it's I have sort of an unfair an unfair access to to writing nonsense which other people don't have uh but what a we... wonderful position to be in and you clearly have uh, people clearly trust you enough to allow you to do that because that's a very easily kind of uh, easily taken advantage of opportunity I think it's more that i can't do any of the other things <laughs> <laughs> like well he's here now and he can't like write a review really and he can't we don't really trust him enough to send him anywhere so just do whatever you want and just put it on the site and don't swear and you know don't <laughs> don't, don't um don't uh what's it what's it called sorry i have terrible word blindness as well that's the other thing don't uh what's the thing that you can't do when someone's dead uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously, I mean, like uh, so many things pop into my mind. Lots of things. Go for can't. a cycle, uh, a holiday. You, I, mean, I suppose you could, but be ill-advised. It's a legal thing. Uh, you cannot. Uh, you're going to have to edit me a lot because I've lost the ability. I should say, in the evenings, I often am like this. So apologies, I lo- lose the ability to talk. No, that's fine. Uh, is it wrong of me to be to find this quite amusing 
like in a playful <laughs> sense. I don't want to. I, I'm, I suddenly panicked. Am I just making fun of, of Christian there? Because that's terrible. Not at all. Not at all. And I encourage it. It's okay, mad- good. It's maddening. Defame is what I meant. Ah, okay, okay, okay. You can't defame. You can't defame I can't even remember how I got here. This, this is a, I'm even more disastrous than I normally am. <laughs> You um, see, the, but, the, the problem here is, though, is that you're, you're much cleverer than I am, Christian, so you'll be thinking of words, and I <laughs> I won't be able to think of them. Then They're not going to come true. to me easily. That's true. And also, all of the words I once knew, I'm now forgetting. So uh, anyway, anyway, sorry. No, no, um, that's fine. That's fine. Can I quickly, before I, I know we're recording the show, and blah, 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 I just want to quickly ask you. Yeah. You met Ricky Jay once. I did meet Ricky Jay once, yes. What was he like? You're going to need to. In fact, we're probably going to edit this bit out. So you no, don't we can edit. I've I've already written down the timestamp, so I can write around okay. edit around it. He was, he was very grumpy, and right. he he seemed very unhappy to be there, which was a real shame. Where was he? Where was he? He was at Glasgow Film Theatre, which is uh, the kind of independent cinema in Glasgow, and it was part of the the Glasgow Film Festival, which is every February, and he was um, showing his documentary film, which. I'm, I'm now blanking on the name, uh, but there was a documentary film which was about his life and his career, yes. um, and kind of, the, but still retaining quite a lot of mystery because he has very, very mysterious background and nobody really knows an awful lot about his parents other than he doesn't really associate with them. So he yes. was there to kind of do a do a Q and A, and a friend of mine in Glasgow, this incredible magician called Gordon Bruce, uh, who's also like an avid collector. He has a, the most amazing library of kind of vintage magic books and, and props and things um and that's why he knows ricky so well because ricky is also a, a kind of um unashamed collector of, of magic books and paraphernalia so they've been friends for for many years so because of my friendship with gordon i went along to the film and we got to sort of meet him briefly afterwards i always feel you probably have much more insight into this than i do but i feel we talk about books and games and music and games and some people talk about architecture and games and films but in fact magic and games so much more in common than other forms of art i think yeah no absolutely you know just even like i was thinking about this whenever you i was thinking about playing titanfall 2 today just because i'm off six i'm playing a load of old stuff and um i was thinking about that thing the closing the doors you do in magic where you kind of close off all of the other possibilities yeah you kind of go yeah and, and you're often like you're misleading them you're telling them that these possibilities are closed when they aren't because you're gonna use it in your trick yeah it's, it's but, a, a equivocate you you kind of you you present the the illusion of choice when there is no real choice yeah and you define the boundaries of the the the, the, the world yeah the trick you know and it feels like lots of games do exactly that and they work in that same mechanical there's something about Titanfall. Have you played Titanfall 2? I haven't played it, no. Oh, God, it's actually amazing. I know. The, like, everything is amazing these days. It's, it's really know. annoying. But this one is amazing. It's a cut above how amazing everything else is. And um, there's something about the map design. that it's, it's so... Even though it's this kind of whiz-bang video game and they can do whatever... You know they can do whatever they want and stuff like that. There's something about the actual mechanical rigor of the maps the way they kind of have oxbows and they like lead you around and then they they drop you off right where you started again it's it's just beautiful to be inside an amazingly built machine like that it's really i think you'd love it but um also it will make you think about magic that's a it's an odd one that because there is 
I feel like there should be more connections than there are, and I don't know. Maybe I haven't thought about it enough. Do you know? Um, do you know Mark Wallbank? He used to write for Edge. Uh, I don't. I know of him, but I, don't, I have never met him. Um, he he's a good friend of mine now. He lives in in Glasgow too, and he's a magician also, which is a very odd thing. I knew him years ago when he used to work at Edge, and then weirdly we all ended up in the same city, both doing magic. And he actually gave a a, a talk at Game City, I think for the very first kind of Game City Festival, while he was still wow. kind of still had a, a foot a little bit in, in video games. And he gave a talk about uh, the relationship between magic and, and games. And we actually uh, met up with him like a couple of weeks before to sort of chat through some ideas. Uh, and it, beyond kind of um, misdirection, I guess, and, you know, focusing people's attention and and the element of, of uh, surprise and delight, you know, when... You, you have like unexpected consequences there wasn't as much as i'd hoped um but also i, th- I think part of that is just because magic is is an extraordinarily limited thing like magic is all about the cell there isn't a lot of there isn't a huge amount of kind of mechanics behind it necessarily yeah not as many not as much you, people that, think that, at least but that feels quite i mean maybe the thing is this is really interesting i never really thought about this maybe it's more like because i'm not a magician i'm just like a fan of magic yeah Maybe, maybe it just from the outside, it seems like there's a lot more. I just remember talking about talking to kind of, do you do close up magic? And I do. Stuff yeah, like that? I do. And like, you know, the whole idea that these, they're like, they, you know, you've got like your force and your kind of, um, false shuffle. You've got like four or five things you do and every trick is kind of recombinations of those with patter. Yeah. And that feels, that feels like game. I'm sure there are games. I feel like I've played games where I'm like, this is the same this is the same force, but different pattern. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I feel, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, anyway, 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 anyway. Yeah. I, I'm almost glad Ricky J was slightly prickly. That's sort of how he is in my mind. Kind of grumpy, just got up slightly sinister, but let's, brilliant. Let's, let's do video games. I've been a terrible interviewee so far. No, you've been amazing. It, it's it's that odd thing, like because I, because I listen to the podcast so much. It's, it's that classic thing of you you feel familiar with the people, even though you don't necessarily know the people. Oh, yeah, my inability to stay on on message. Anyway, yes, you're right, totally you? totally on in character. Uh, it's fine. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> as I wake up every day, I'd have been character. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway, let's do some video game stuff. So. If you can remember, Christian, what was your very first experience of a video game? Right. It was... I was thinking about this. Um, There was a game... I want to talk about this game very briefly because it's not that interesting, but then talk about some other games around this time that were more interesting. Is that okay? Yeah. So let's let's put you in a a place then. Whereabouts in the country did you grow up and all that? So this was after we had moved... I was born in the States... um, and my family, my dad's American and my mum is English. And I feel like I've told this, I've told this story so many times I'm not going to tell it this time. <laughs> it is but, an amazing uh, story, though, and I will find out a way of redirecting people to it because it's, it's such a beautiful story. So, um, oh, maybe I, should just, maybe I should just tell it. Should if I you can do, do a short uh, version of it, sure. I'll do, I'll do this one of the greatest hits. Um, my <laughs> dad was a Silent Order monk, and it was the, uh, the 60s. So he uh, became a monk in the state. My dad's American. He grew up in L.A. And he um, they were Irish and they were Catholic. And he just he always wanted to help the world. And as an Irish Catholic 18 year old, he thought the way to do that was to become a monk. 
and uh, he became a, a silent order Franciscan monk in various places around. Uh, he was in California and in Minnesota and stuff like that. And he had um, a crisis of faith, um, which it re- only recently I discovered was because he had taken acid in the woods. This was like the 60, this would be like 68 or 67. Um, he took acid in the woods with a friend of his. And um, there was, he, he told me this story the other day and it was really emotional. He was like, uh, the trees became all these different colors. And then the trees, they, were, they, they turned into aluminum. And I know other people's acid trips are about as exciting as other people's dreams when they tell you about them. But this was really the trees. They were surrounded by these tall trees in this woods in California. And the trees all became these kind of geometric aluminum shapes. And there were monks crawling through the trees and kind of poking their heads out and saying peekaboo at my dad. And he realized that he told me that he realized that he was not meant to spend his life around people who he was not able to connect with, that he didn't have any kind of deep connection with. And you couldn't have a connection with these people because it was you weren't allowed to talk to them. You had to speak in Latin. You know, my dad has notes from the books he read at the time when he was in the monastery, and they're all in Latin because that's just how they did did their, their work and everything. Um, and so he – there was other things. The Vietnam War was going on, and um, he was saying he, he had a job – uh, working in a veterans hospital and he said that the same week that Nixon made um, Nixon made postage more expensive for Vietnam soldiers to send letters home he also cut the funding for, vet- for veterans uh, wounded individual showers and they had to be kind of like hosed hosed on mass and he was just like um, sorry, this got really dark. I do apologize. No, 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 it's, it's, it's good. This is the 20th century, though. And he, he just realized that he couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't be not be part of the world anymore. And so he went around on this, he went backpacking around Europe and he was hitchhiking through Kent and um, he was, uh, yeah, hitchhiking and my mum was driving by in a Hillman Imp, which is quite a cute little English car. And she picked him up by the side of the road. And like three weeks later, they were married. Um, but they could never decide whether they wanted to live in America or in England. And they sort of, we ping pong back and forth a lot. So I'm one of five kids. And I think um, I think three of us were born in the States and two of us were born in the UK. And I was born, I was one of the three who was born in the States. But yeah, anyway. Long story short, that was a completely redundant. You can cut all of that. <laughs> Absolutely not. No chance. <laughs> that, that, is, that is beautiful backstory. That 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 sets a, a really nice context for everything that's going to happen. Well, it sets context for the fact that I'm now going to tell you about Blitz on the Vic Twenty, <laughs> the first video game. So the Vic Twenty was this sort of um, the precursor to the Commodore sixty four. I want to say. Yeah, it was very it, early. Yeah, and, and Blitz was this arcade game where you were a plane crossing the screen left to right and there were these skyscrapers and you had to bomb the skyscrapers so that you could eventually land on the ground obviously like um the you know geopolitical events have caught up with this game and rendered it completely horrific but that was the first game i think i saw and um it didn't really it didn't really do much for me but then over the next couple of years, uh, they got my, my brothers got a Commodore 64. So 
all of my really early video game memories of watching other people play. I don't know. I imagine it's the same for other people with with older with older siblings. I don't think video games were no, some, never something. Well, they were computer games for one thing, but they were never something that you played yourself. They were something that if you were very quiet, you could sit in the room and not be sort of not annoy anyone to the point that they'd send you away. Yeah. We're seeing um, three games in particular stand out. One was the uh, Activision Ghostbusters, which was made by David Crane, who was one of the founders of Activision. Um, the other one was Impossible Mission, which was, um, oh my God, I'll talk about these games a bit more in a second. And the third one was Spy vs. Spy. Do you remember these? Do you, have you played any of these three games? I've played all of these games. Oh my God, brilliant. Okay, well, I mean, like Impossible Mission is like a classic, right? It's, it's... Do you know, I never but... got on with Impossible Mission. And oh I had it on the Master System, and I don't know if it was just a bad port, but I remember everybody... Not, I don't remember everybody, because nobody talked to me about games, so I was very young, but like reading in magazines, and it got all these amazing scores, and I'd play it and be like, what, what on earth? Where is the appeal in this? I'm just running I around, think... hacking terminals, and going up and down in the lift. I'm going to be very rude about a port that I haven't played, but I can't imagine its virtues came across on the Master System, because on the Commodore 64, it was just so graceful it was the animation was just so elegant of your running guy so you're a guy you're a spy running through this underground complex mm-hmm. from something it is El- elvin Atombender's the bad guy and he was playing his favorite computer game and there was a power cut and his score was wiped and so he's going to launch a nuclear uh strike on america to kind of make up for it obviously <laughs> current <laughs> event caught up with this storyline absolutely less appealing than it was but so so you are exploring this kind of procedural underground at the time i didn't realize it was procedural at all but like the rooms sort of the rooms are designed but their placement sort of spins around and then you're searching i, don't think I ever for, knew that actually i never knew that yeah no that is so so yeah it's the, the rooms are actually all the i think the rooms are always the same i may be completely wrong about this the rooms are always the same but they are placed differently but also the puzzle pieces which are hidden inside. It's a non-violent game. You can't. These robots can kill you. Elven Attenbenders patrolling robots can kill you, but you can't do anything to them apart from avoid them. Uh, and you're searching through all of Elven Attenbenders' stuff to find these little puzzle pieces which you put together, and eventually you have the, the, the password to get into his secret lair and stop him. Um, and there's this wonderful... When you look at it now, you're like, oh, my God, there's this wonderful mix of, like, the um, bespoke and the procedural in that, you know, he uh, designed the feel of the game. It was, it feels a very certain way. And some of these rooms have actual puzzles built into them. You know, the elevators, the way the elevators move up and down. It's almost 2d. So it's side scrolling. I'm describing this game really badly, but the puzzle pieces are randomized. The layout of the rooms within the, within the underground complex, you move up and down in this elevator and they are all randomized in the way the map is randomized. The passwords, there's like eight or nine of them which are juggled. And then the robot behavior, there's three or four different kinds of robot behavior and you never know which robot you're going to get when you encounter one. So some of them can kind of, some of them are aware that you're there and they kind of seek you. Some of them don't, some of them shoot, some of them never shoot. And not even that, but his rock, um, the, 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 the kind of the, the rock pattern in the base you're looking at this sort of side on. So part of your view is kind of a cross section of rock. He had this procedural rock pattern generator. It's just, the guy was amazing. His name is Dennis Caswell. Really interesting man. Left video games to become a poet. 
and there is something really special about this. It, it, this game, the atmosphere of it was so. Tra- it was the first game that really, really scared me. You're underground. There's no clear way that you would have got into that underground base. So I remember as a kid just being very frightened by the fact that there was no way in. You just spawn in this elevator. And I just felt like, oh, I'm never going to get out of here. A, this game is really hard. But also, even if you get through it, I just don't think I'm going to get out of here because I didn't see the way in. And um, I wonder if you do get out at the end. Uh, no, at the end. So eventually, you know, years later, I cheated my way through it. And um, you, you, you can stop the guy and you kind of get to his lair and you see him. And there's another little bit of the other thing the game had is it had a couple of um, bits of sort of speech. You know, the Commodore 64. I remember the speech. Yeah. Before I hear my robots and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and at the end, uh, there's another bit of speech where Atom Bender says no a couple of times when you when you're clearly going to stop him. But the, but the sort of the, the mixture of this kind of lonely exploration of this place and then the sound effects. He's running, he's running or echoing on steel floors. Is really, oh god, it's it'll stay with me to the day I die. And then these incredibly beautiful balletic uh kind of flips you could do over robots it was just oh god what an incredible game um i w- very quickly talk about the other two as well uh ghostbusters was you, did you oh, still, i played you didn't ghostbusters like- i didn't like impossible mission i loved ghostbusters although as you described impossible mission i realized it must have been a really bad port because i don't remember any of the rock backgrounds i think it was all just black like blank backgrounds and the animation wasn't that great there was something elegant and refined about impossible mission was classy in a weird way and i think even as like a even as sort of a six or seven year old you, i sort of knew it was classy in a weird in a weird kind of groping towards that sort of yeah. sort of raised by snobs as well i think probably uh, i don't think i was classy I, enough i think that was I, I was probably frustrated that i couldn't shoot everything as as that I age i don't think i was classy but i think i was i was aware that i was expected to be yeah slightly. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but then ghostbusters so ghostbusters bloody hell Ghostbusters. This is what I want to talk about with these three games, because Ghostbusters is it takes this incredible comedy film that we all love and it turns it into essentially like a business simulation where yeah. you're running your Ghostbusters franchise and you have this map of New York. And there's this incredible moment. I still fills me with this kind of fear and excitement when the gate. So a lot of the time you're just playing a map of New York and dispatching your Ghostbusters to wherever. A, a, a city block will start to flash red and you'll know there's a, there's a call there and you go over there and you catch a ghost or you don't catch a ghost. But eventually the key master and the gatekeeper who are also walking around New York completely independently. They meet at Spook Central occasionally at the very end. And there was this real sense of, oh, my God, you know, occasion. And yeah. your, your Ghostbuster logo slowly moved over to Spook Central as well. I just remember thinking, God, something is something big is happening. It had this real sense of of spectacle. But then, very quickly, Spy vs. Spy, the old Mad Magazine, uh, Black Spy, White Spy, Cold War kind of thing, that was turned into a multiplayer game in which you you'd, you could directly fight each other. You wandered around these little isometric rooms. Mm-hmm. It's complex. You could directly fight each other, but that wasn't the point. The point was that you had this device which allowed you to place traps in places, because the Spy vs. Spy was all about horrible violence, sort of tit-for-tat violence, as these people would kind of use terrible kind of James Bond gadgetry against each other. And so you could put like electrified water over the door or you could kind of um, tie a, a like a, a 
a gun to a, a painting or something when they lifted the painting it would shoot them and stuff like that because everyone's looking for these little bits that they need to escape they're looking for everything that to put in their diplomatic bags so they can escape once again you'd think i didn't do this for a living because i'm explaining these games really badly no, no, but, no, um, the one thing i really remember about this game is that you could put a spring inside like a filing cabinet so you're constantly walking through these rooms hoping you don't meet the other spy it's a two-player game. You're constantly going through these. You're in the same set of six rooms as the other person. You're constantly walking through these rooms, hoping that you don't meet them. And what you're doing is you're you're going through the furniture because you're looking for the items you need to escape and win the game. But you're also trying to trap the items that you've searched in order to kill your opponent. And each trap has something. There's a, there's something that counters it. So you can go into, for example, if you think that something's been uh, trapped, trapped with a spring. You can go in with scissors, and they can cut it, and you know, and it doesn't go off. But I remember once my brother trapped a bookcase or something like that, and it blew me through. It, it, when it, if it's a spring, it, it it just forces you backwards. It pushes you backwards, and then if you hit a wall, you die. Yeah. Normally, you hit a wall in that room, but for whatever reason, this spring fired me through three different rooms. One of which my brother was in, and I saw myself kind of passing through. <laughs> and then hitting this wall and it was just the most i just thought it was so i mean a part of me is still laughing over that <laughs> and and so th those three games were just such a, an unfair education in games in a way because they were just god like they they weren't tied down by genre and they they were just really inventive and it reminds me of um Something Sid Meier always says that he, when he talks about his early. So this is terrible name dropping. I do apologize. But one thing Sid Meier says, which is one of the reasons I love him so much. Not that you need a reason to love Sid Meier. Absolutely he's not. The greatest. But he says that back in the he doesn't he talks about topics all the time. He's, but one of his big words is topics. And he says, you know, when you're thinking about making a game, you think about which topics you could choose to make the game about. And he never thinks about genre. He thinks about topics, and he lets the topic lead him. So, which is why he's made like spy games. He made a game about bark, you know, and he's, he's done a, a what, and each game is so different. Like he was never hamstrung by genre. Yeah. Have you read, um, oh God, I read this thing the other day. Have you read the little friend, the Donna Tart book? I've not. No. Oh, well it's, it's good. I like, I'm rereading it and it's really fun. Uh, it's sort of this, it doesn't matter what it's about. This is a novel about the South, and it's very brilliant. The South of the South of North America, rather than the South of England, is yeah. not about sort of <laughs> hanging out in Margate. Um, <laughs> that, would be, that would be good as well. That I'm would sure. also be good, yeah. And she talks about how uh, one of the characters goes in this rant about fruitcake and how terrible fruitcake is. And I was thinking, God, fruitcake is crap, and no one does really like fruitcake. But there is this weird point when you're making fruitcake when it's delicious, like fruitcake batter is delicious but nobody eats fruitcake batter because you're meant to bake it in a certain way and sort of serve it in a certain way and turn it into this thing that no one actually really likes and sometimes with genre it feels the same thing like we're all like you're just encouraged to sort of bake and consume these fruitcakes that no one really likes and it would be so much more interesting the games that are really exciting where they've stepped away from genre a bit and gone where is this game actually leading us it doesn't matter how we're going to sell it yeah how we're going to box or anything but like what is this game actually asking to be about and i think ghostbusters is such a good example of that it's like 
you know, they've made Ghostbusters games since and they're like squad based shooters. And that's not really what Ghostbusters is about at all. The fantasy of Ghostbusters in a really odd way is the fantasy of being crazy and running your own business in New York. Absolutely. That's the and, and for David Crane to sort of understand that, to understand that it was meant to be a, a business game, you know, you lost Ghostbusters if you went out of business. It was brilliant. And, and everything that happened to you in that game had a cost. You know, you could deck out your car with a, a vacuum on the front to suck up ghosts, but only if you could afford it. And when your guys got slimed, you ran out of guys because you couldn't, you couldn't pay to recruit more staff. And you just think, oh, man, I don't know. You just think it, th- those three games all seem to be a reminder to me, looking back now from where, I, where we are now, I look back at them and I just think, God, games were great before genre came in and, and screwed everything up. Not that, <laughs> not that things aren't great now. They're wonderful. And in fact, we were talking before we started recording, we were talking about how good games are now. But like there was just that when someone said, oh, I've got a Ghostbusters game and you didn't really know what it was going to be. Yeah. And when, you know, uh, Spy versus Spice, first Spy versus Spice is comic in Mad Magazine, you know, and, and you didn't know what it was going to be. You didn't know, well, I guess it's like going to be a cover based shooter or whatever. You didn't know. <laughs> it was, um, uh, anyway, sorry, random. No, 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 it's, it's good because, like, I, I do think a lot of that, like, I'm sure you can get the equivalent kind of Ghostbusters style game. I'm sure those kind of experiences do exist in, like, very sort of small versions i guess like someone is making that game on itch and you may not be aware of it i guess but i think that the difference there is that we're, we're just so aware of genres like they're, they're just, not just that it's not that they made them before genres existed it was just before they were kind of fundamental to everyone's thinking about things like i would immediately if that ghostbusters game came out today for instance i would classify it in my brain it would just go into like you know management sim and that would be what it is. But at yeah. the time, it wasn't. It was a Ghostbusters game, and it was amazing. And it wasn't like any of the games I played. And, and I loved it because it felt like Ghostbusters. Um, exactly. I, think like that, I think the problem isn't genre. It's that, like, um, Charcot, the neurologist, the, the sort of 19th century neurologist. I can't believe I'm name-dropping Charcot. I'm just no, 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 it's good. But he said... would be disappointed if he didn't, Christian. He said, he said to Freud... That it is, it is strange that people, he was talking about doctors, but he said people only see what they have been taught to see. And it's part of the problem he had with doctors, you know, getting doctors to kind of actually look at their patients and see what might be wrong with them. And they were only seeing the things that they've been taught to look for. Exactly. And they were it's really obvious things. And I think, I think genre is the same thing where you kind of go, I remember reviewing Pikmin 2, no, Pikmin 3. I reviewed Pikmin 3 for Eurogamer and all the way through I talked about it as if it was a um strategy game and my review of Pikmin 3 is terrible um I missed the point completely because I was so aware that people were the clamor around that game around that series has always been on Nintendo are doing a strategy game blah 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 blah. so I approached it and I I viewed the entire game and I played through the game as if it was a strategy game it's not a strategy game at all it's a it's a puzzle game and Actually, looking back, I've got so much more to say about it as a puzzle game than as a strategy game. And I, I had, I was. That's a really good example of. I mean, it's. I have a lot of these examples because I'm, in, I'm quite stupid. But like a really good example of just bringing the wrong lens to look at something because Absolutely. you, because you have, you bring your expectations with you. And I think so often in these conversations, the thing which is tripping everyone up is 
is genre. It's just this way of looking at games, which is so unhelpful. But also, I'm so deeply um, uh, co-responsible for yeah. it. I mean, it's unavoidable. Um, well, yes. well, speaking of that, like this, this idea of, of you know viewing things through through specific lenses. I mean, you're clearly someone who who thinks about games an awful lot. Like all these games you just mentioned as being kind of um, sort of foundational. I, I'm assuming you wouldn't have felt that at the time. Like, so, so when did when do you think? you started kind of gaining this kind of perspective or, or like this kind of relationship with games, I suppose. God, I don't know. That's a really good question because obviously I wasn't looking at them and going, well, this is really interesting. They could have done this and they did this. I don't know. I don't know at what point you start to, I mean, part of the problem is somewhere along the line, I became someone who writes about games for a living, at which point all of my early experiences became potential uh, money. <laughs> <laughs> And looking back, I've written about those three games for Edge magazine. Um, I hadn't thought about it until now, but I've, I've written about those three in particular. And um, but I, I think even before then, I think I think just as you see games kind of cohering and the, the things that games are coming together, which really in the by the nineties you were really seeing games understanding of what they were themselves sort of coming together. Yeah, yeah, it, totally. Sort of, all the planets kind of sort of forming out of the dust. And even then you could look back and you go, God, this did used to be different. This didn't, this did, there used to be a more freedom of approach. And I'm sure it was linked to limitations, you know, but um, I don't know. I really don't know. I really don't know where, well, where just, that... I guess what, what I was kind of reaching for there was kind of where, like, did those games kind of seal in you like, oh my God, I, I love games. I need to play everything from now on. Or were they just kind of a part of your childhood that you kind of maybe didn't think about so much until obviously later on when you started working in that sort of field? No, they were a magical part of childhood. They were definitely, um, probably because I didn't get to play them very often. Do you know what I mean? I was really watching yeah. them. Like, these were the original Let's Plays, like watching my brother. <laughs> Uh, my brother Ben and um, do these play these games and just occasionally getting a go and finding out that I couldn't control it and all those things. So how did but, the computer get into the house? Though was that like were oh your God. brothers kind of trying to to get yeah, it? Brother, was it? My, my brothers are both. Uh, my brothers are six and eight years older than me, and their world was quite mysterious, and their relationship with our parents was quite mysterious because I just didn't. You know, I had a, I was younger and I had a different relationship with them. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's funny. I listen to your shows a lot and it's always, there is always this sort of lineage of like, how did these things get there? And I have no idea. I have no idea because it wasn't my, um, interaction. I was just, I was, I was literally just watching in a weird way. That is quite a good, so someone who writes about good games, that's quite a good origin story. This kind of useless bumbling witness. That's not bad. <laughs> I haven't really changed that persona at all. <laughs> I retained that uh, viewpoint on the world, even in my my professional work. <laughs> well, I, um, like, but... so as, as you got older, though, then like, did you? Was there a point when the the whatever the games machine happened to be was was your machine, and you weren't kind of just a, a, an observer? It was like something you you went for to get. I think this was secondary school. I was thinking about this the other day because Wonder Boy. Have you played the remake of Wonder Boy? I have. Yes, yeah, yeah. it's, uh, it's wonderful. So good. That's isn't a it? terrible so... you know, excuse the tautology. But no, 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 no. Oh, I like it. I did, it is. It is one. The thing is, it is wonderful. And I was 
playing through it and going, why do I care about this game so much? And obviously I care about this game. This is really, I suppose this is sort of the answer to the question again. I care about the game for all of the things it does, which seemed mechanically inventive, the way that it's a platformer that isn't, that doesn't behave like a platformer. You can go, you can fall into the water and you don't die. You actually end up underwater in a different screen. All these things, you know, there's a platformer in which every, every exit was an entrance somewhere else. Um, but I think the reason I actually care about it is because I went to secondary school and it was terrifying as I think secondary school often is, you know, I went to an all boys grammar school and which I would not recommend to anyone. Um, and, uh, I was with, I I didn't know, none of the people I'd gone to primary school came, went to the same school and there was this one kid in class and we became friends and he had a master system. And I remember after walking home from school and I'd go, you know, you'd go around to his house and I'd watch, I traded watching my brother playing (laughs) watching, Gareth playing Wonderboy and stuff like that and Bonanza Brothers. And uh, that was probably the moment where I was allowed the occasional go at that point. And I ended up getting a master system and all those sort of things. So I think that was the point where I, I sort of, I became the person who was interested in games in our house. But it, even then it was this weird, it was this weird social glue. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Between people who are trying to be friends because you need to have a friend at a new school and you're awkward. You've never had to really make friends yourself you don't really know how to be around people and it was this thing it was uh do you know what i mean it was it was just a, a, a something that helped that come along oh and absolutely when... i do i mean i ask everybody about about this about how you form relationships especially in school because that's exactly my experience like a lot of my friendships are formed on because i loved games and if i found someone else who i could talk to games about it, that was that was great and then that removed a lot of the social awkwardness yeah. of like what else do you talk about Definitely. And I think I think I'm going to try and remember that as a parent, try and remember that the things kids are excited about, the things which kids seem too excited about aren't really it's not really the thing in themselves. Sometimes it's the function that they are that they are uh, performing in the wider world. I think games are definitely that. That said, Wonder Boy 3 is an absolute banger and uh, I do love it. But (laughs) aside from aside from Gareth, though, were were there other kids? Did you form like a little community of, of kids? There were there was a lot of um, lending. There was a lot of lending. Like you could lend a game to someone who you didn't really get on with. Like that was an that was a kind of way of broadening the um, the social circle a little bit. And there were also lots of. Um, I've always wanted to write a piece about this, but I've never been able to get the right story behind it. But there were always there were lots of. Um, sort of there was lots of folklore about things you could do in games. Oh, to of course. Kind of, you know, like the cheat codes. There's a cheat code of Wonder Boy, um, which weirdly enough I wrote about the other day. Um, and and I remember, you know, I, when I got the new version, I could remember this code. It's the West and, One code, right? Um, uh, well, well, it is. But we didn't know. Someone had just told us uh, <laughs> the code is West One. And we didn't realize the game was made by a company called Weston, right? We didn't. Know I did anything. not know that until the re-release, actually. Actually, until I spoke and uh, I, I spoke to um, Omar, who made it on the show, oh, and then I had that realization of, oh, right, of course. What an amazing, amazing bit of work he did. So we went home. Gareth and I went back to his house, and we were like West One, and we put in wet, and we didn't realize it. There's like four four numbers, and then three numbers, and so we should have gone West One. But what we did was we, we, we typed in West, which is W-E-5-T, and then we put the number one, and it didn't work. 
And we thought, God, that's weird. You know, this thing must be broken. At no point did we think we should spell one because it's literally almost telling us to spell one. But then we found out eventually we just kept plugging away, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, even when it doesn't work and expecting a different result. And actually, if you type West 111111, there's another weird code. It, 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 it doesn't get you to the end of the game. It gets you halfway through the game with a bunch of stuff, but not as much as you had otherwise. But it also leaves you as Wonderboy, which is weird because you're not ever meant to really be able to play Wonderboy in the main game. Um, cool story, bro, etc. But <laughs> there were all of these, they, you know, there were lots of... Um, there were lots of games came with all this folklore attached. Oh, and in yeah. fact, if you had a, a shit game that you were trying to unload, you would sometimes pretend that there was something <laughs> about it <laughs> that was more interesting so that someone would swap it. I did that yeah. with uh, Ghost House on the Mass System, which was a, a very bad kind of 2D explore oh. map, I guess. And you had to fight Dracula and the Wolfman. Uh, was that? Where that was the game that was famous because jump and punch were were switched around. The buttons were the yeah, wrong way. Yeah, yeah, the wrong way around. But and you could like yeah. jump on knives and throw. It was like a very kind of cartoony Castlevania, I guess. Um, nice. But it had blood in it when you stabbed. I, I think it did. Maybe I'm I've, I'm believing my own lie now. But that was how <laughs> I would get get people to to loan it and swap games with me. Oh, there's blood in it. There's loads of blood in it. It's amazing. It's really gory. Yeah, you had to do. I remember someone had uh, Aztec Adventure. And they were constantly trying to... Um, and on paper, Aztec Adventure sounds amazing. Aztec Adventure, yeah, brilliant. And it, in reality, it's an absolute dog of a game. I but, remember uh, that very fondly, weirdly enough. <laughs> you would have been ha- very happy to have... Uh, to have uh, My friend Alan, when he pawned it off on someone, you would have been very happy <laughs> in that exchange. But yeah, no, it, there's, there's this life around games that we just forget about. Um, and it's never covered in any... It, maybe it is, I'm just not reading it. But it's it's it's... Super interesting to look back at that time, and often what you don't—you think you remember the games, but what you actually remember is the sort of world that the games belong to. Maybe that's just yeah. me being nostalgic and sort of in my inching towards forty. But yeah, <laughs> uh, fond memories. Did you ever used to get like I remember like Street Fighter was obviously one of the biggest ones for the the hoaxes, and there was uh, a, a kind of arcade that came with the fear whenever the fear came. It was usually Mayday, and they had like a whole row of uh, chipped arcade oh. boards. And so people would always talk about, oh, Chun-Li can do fireballs and Guile can put people in handcuffs, I remember. That was one of them. Um, we, were, we were a lot more basic in Kent. I think but they really existed, was... though. That was what was exciting. You go to the carnival and you play these kind of like hacked arcade boards and Chun-Li could throw fireballs and Guile could. <laughs> I mean, you're kind of you're, you're inferring from the kind of glitches on screen, but it could be handcuffs. You, you could, I could see why someone would say that. Uh, it was amazing. <laughs> Oh, wow. I'd like to um, No, It's weird. Like we didn't um, the whole coin up thing really passed me by, which is terrible. But we didn't. I, it was just not part of my life. I think I was afraid to go out as a kid quite a lot. <laughs> afraid of Kent, which is obviously a very terrifying oh, yeah. place. No one suffered quite the way I have. But um, but I don't think I think I don't think nerds like us were ever comfortable somewhere a little bit edgy, like the kind of place where they have uh, coin up machines. So we were really sort of stuck at home, the only places where we wouldn't be sort of bullied and terrorized. And so because of that, I don't really have a lot of those those memories that I probably should. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, g- given what you've gone on to then, because like, but, but, uh, this is, I mean, I, I feel like I'm repeating this every week, but it's, it's, a, it's a perfectly valid point, is that you know, prior to the internet, 
you you had these kind of groups of, of kids and that's where the kind of folklore came from but you also had magazines which were essentially you know the the wider community it let you know that there were other people out there that were interested did and you know, given what you've gone on to do i'm assuming magazines would have played some sort of role in your love of games oh mean machines was just huge it, mean machines was huge at our school and i think it was probably huge at most people's school but like we just we lo- we loved the world that they created it's quite odd working it's odd and wonderful working at eurogame with rich ledbetter who was someone who i tried to tell him this rich ledbetter digital foundry you know literally the only irreplaceable person in the games industry <laughs> but um I, when I first met him, I was trying to tell him, like, I feel like I've known, well, I sort of have known you my entire life. <laughs> you, know, you were really famous in our school back in, like, 1991 or whatever. I drew pictures and, of Rich Ledbetter when I was a kid. Uh, do you know him? He's I don't know. I've, I've never met him. Uh, he's one of the greatest men. He's, he would do anything for anyone. He's absolutely uh, just, he's proof that you should meet your heroes if they're Rich Ledbetter. But, yeah, no, those, those, those magazines were really uh, important to us. And then going forward leaping forward to kind of after university uh edge edge was the big like that that magazine was a world to me it was a world in itself which seems people sort of talk about edge being sort of slightly frosty and sort of you know distanced that they were sort of like the professors of games it never really felt like that to me it was this it was this again it was like it was older brothers it felt like really smart older brothers who were telling you cool stuff and um yeah that was so those two magazines from mean mean machines to edge those were the two video game magazine loves of my life (laughs) (laughs) well well well, speaking of university then like did did you have the idea that you would write about games in your mind before you went to university like was that a thing that had occurred to you that you could do no i think i left i think i got out of video games around sort of um around the second year of school It, it was a brief thing at school i don't know um it feels to me that everyone has a period where games are not that important to them it just feels that my period was a bit longer than it probably was meant to be so i think around about 92 games stopped being that interesting maybe it's 91 maybe it was a really short window of the master system a little bit of the mega drive but then um and then at university games like i i shared a house with someone who had um i remember seeing tomb raider and metal gear solid but going from understanding 2d games they just i didn't understand them i would look at them and i'd be like i don't understand this and i remember thinking when i'd finished like in in 91 or 92 or whatever 2d games had achieved this sort of real elegance and beauty Mm -hmm. i remember just thinking 3d games looked so scrappy in comparison i remember when Lara Croft ran down a corridor, the edges around the screen would sort of fragment, like the polygons would, would disappear. And I remember just thinking, God, that looks so unfinished. I mean, now I look at it and it looks amazing. Like those those games, the PS1 games, look beautiful in a way that um, they didn't at the time. They do now. They're, they're getting that kind of crazy retro aesthetic. G-Police, Edwin wrote a piece on G-Police for us the other day, and that game looks incredible but at the time all i could see was it didn't have the kind of coherent the rigor the incoherency of 2d games where the world was perfect do you know what i mean i do yeah it seems seems sort of weird to say but 
Uh, but do you remember, were you that kind of far removed, though, that you were kind of you you weren't even necessarily peripherally aware of the kind of development? I mean, you would have been peripherally aware, obviously, but but not, you I, know. I remember looking at them and thinking, I don't understand what this is. Like, I remember like um, MGS, I did, Metal Gear Solid, I didn't, I didn't really understand what kind of game it was. And Tomb Raider, I sort of got the sense, oh, this is like the evolution of the platformer, but it just doesn't. It just looks weird. Looking back, Tomb Raider, I think it w- was the first game i ever saw and i ever played because eventually i ended up playing it my when i left university i then i I found out it would run on my old 486 no no it must have been a pentium actually so i played tomb raider on that um and i remember thinking this is the first game that has actually 3d isn't like a trick like it's i hadn't played mario 64 by this point or anything like that it just felt like the first game that was thoroughly 3d like you couldn't you couldn't draw the world of tomb raider on a piece of paper like flat and it would make sense there was something about the way that game used 3d that was so exciting but it, at the time when i first saw it i remember so 1996 she would start appearing around uh lara croft would start appearing at university she was on like flyers for nightclubs and like i remember that the um student president uh, sort of, you know, the stupid student elections over at university. One of them, one of them was sort of using Lara Croft on their um, advertising. So Lara Croft was running, running for student government <laughs> at university. About universities around England, this is happening. But it, I remember that yeah, the first time, complete bafflement at it, which is which is which is weird. There was a long period where games sort of dropped off the radar for me. And so, what what pulled you back in? Was it just the kind of creeping curiosity at these new 3d games or was there a specific moment or, or thing i went i got after i went to university um i then what did you study uh, at university sorry just to oh god I, I studied um so, so i i you didn't have to did, tell me <laughs> i was just curious i didn't do very well i didn't do very well at school i did quite badly at school actually um and i only have one a level i remember telling um Dan grilled this once and he was so horrified. He almost couldn't believe me. Um, now I think he talked to me for about another five minutes. It's like, Oh, actually I believe you. Um, <laughs> so I've got, yeah. Um, so, but back in those days you could get to, God, we, we were so lucky back in those days. If you had a terrible, hopeless academic, um, you know, if you had hopeless academic prospects, you could still get in somewhere. And I really, really loved films back then. And I didn't want to go to university. I didn't think academia was anything I was interested in. Um, but there was a course in Bournemouth where they taught script writing. And I went there. Um, and then when I was there, I discovered, actually, I didn't like films that much. But I really liked academia. <laughs> <laughs> so once, once I got out, once I finished Bournemouth, I had a year off. I say a year off. It was, it was not like I went to a beach. I went to uh, Royal Sun Alliance Insurance and filed claims. But um, then I went, I, went, I went back to university. I went to Sussex. Um, and after Sussex, I was working at Booper in Bryson. And um, on our intake of temps uh, was a guy called Stuart, who I've written about many times on Eurogamer, my friend Stu, who seems like a plot device, but he's actually real and he's wonderful. And he absolutely loved video games. And the Game Boy Advance had just come out. And I was like, oh, my God, let me look at this thing. He had Advance Wars on the Game Boy Advance. He showed it to me in the break room. And we just became friends immediately. It was that kind of friendship where, you know, you just inst- the moment he walked in the room, I thought, oh, this 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 temp job's going to be all right. 
this guy looks brilliant. <laughs> and um, we got, he was your classic. He had game, he'd been a, like a gamer all his life, all the way through university. He used to play Crazy Taxi in university in the halls and they had a chalkboard where they would write their top scores. And he had this expression, chalk it up. <laughs> whenever anything <laughs> whenever anything of note happened at Booper, he'd say chalk it up and I was like what are you, what are you saying what's chalk it up I mean he was telling me about Crazy Taxi when you got a particularly good score you were allowed to chalk it up on the board but um so yeah he showed me um Advance Wars and stuff like that on the uh, games the Game Boy Advance and then um he used to bring an edge we used to look through it at lunch and I'd seen a friend of mine had got had read edge when I was at university and I just remember thinking this magazine is is really special. This is something else. And then I remember the tipping point was probably it probably wasn't this, but actually this is the thing which really reminds. This was the important one was Animal Crossing. I remember seeing pictures of that in Edge and going, "What is that? What is that game? That looks incredible. It looks like nothing. I can't even imagine how that works." I remember at the time, this was a good period for games where you looked at the screen and you couldn't work out what was going on. Beautiful Joe. Oh, that, that at... early two, late 90s, early 2000s was incredible. Oh, magical, absolutely magical period. And Animal, but Animal Crossing was one of the most profound emotional gaming experiences. Of my, I'm saying everything which makes people laugh at me as a, as a writer of games, sort of talking, getting very emotional about Animal Crossing. But um, oh my God, we played, so we didn't know what Animal Crossing was. My friend bought it. Stu bought it and he bought the freeloader, which it, it, it wasn't going to come out in England, it seemed like. It seemed like it was going to be Japan and America only. Yeah. He bought an American version freeloader and he had to get a special memory. I think he had to, no, 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 that's not right. You could probably use the English memory card. But we went over to his house and we played it and we played it in the morning a little bit. And then we thought, oh, this is cool. It's like a little Tamagotchi kind of village thing. And then we came back in the afternoon and we turned it on and it was it, it was it was winter, so the sun had set early. And it was it was an early evening in the game, and there were lights coming out of the windows of other people's houses, and it had started to snow. And we were thinking, fuck, this is amazing. <laughs> this game knows what time it is. And like seven hours have passed in our in our lives, and seven hours have passed in the game's life. And that that game was just a succession of little surprises. Like, um, uh, like we were just we were blown away by this, and then he bought an axe, and we chopped down a tree, and then we dug a hole, and we tried planting something, and a shoot came out, and then a, a a present came blowing past on a balloon, and we couldn't catch it, and every like that game is just a succession of surprises, and um, I was you know I was uh, just out of university, I didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, and a student, no, we, we were both, you know, kind of, uh, you know, in that weird period in your early 20s where you just don't know what you're doing. Yeah, you just kind and, of get a job and think, oh, I guess I'll do this for a bit. And all of your old structures, like university, I loved university so much. And I love the sort of the, the structure imposed on my life. That these are your friends. This is what you do every day. Um, and that had all gone away. And so uh, I, like, I'd be playing Animal Crossing late into, like I bought my own uh, GameCube. I bought the silver one, which you got with uh, Zelda, the, the Wind Waker. I'd play it like late into the night, really late. So late that Wisp turned up, the ghost who would do your gardening for you. And there was something about that game that was so magnificently lonely. I think I was quite lonely at the time. Though I didn't really know it. You never really do unless you were in a, like a, 
a music video. <laughs> I was quite lonely at the time, and um, there's something about there was one um, seasonal event in the games in the game where there was fireworks. And the way you saw them was you went into, because the, the, the original and the best Animal Crossing, the GameCube, I know it's not the original, but the, the original for us in the West, yeah. Animal Crossing, uh, it was top down and it had a grid and you could go to each grid square and they were subtly different. And one of them had a pond in it. And the way it showed you things that were going on in the skies, you'd see them reflected in the pond. I remember seeing these fireworks reflected in the pond. And it was just, God, I was really just obscurely moved by it, <laughs> which sounds ridiculous. I'm saying it to you and going, God, that's really ridiculous. No, Why? of course it isn't. But um, I just, yeah, it, that game is special. And in fact, all I have to hear is that whistle blowing, the train whistle over the Nintendo logo. And I'm just completely transported to this very odd, a, a moment in my life that I don't really understand the meaning of. But, but yeah, that game was, was pretty special. So that after that, I was back in for good. And I, I, I used to ask Stu, I said, you're not going to like grow out of games, are you? Because that would be really terrible. I got into them. And he was like, you know, I'm 25 now. I don't think, I think if I would, <laughs> if I was games, I would have grown out by now. And actually, I see him fairly regularly and he hasn't grown out of games. Oh, that, lot, is, so. that is a wonderful story. Um, well, I imagine we're going to get to you starting to write about games, but we're going to take a, a brief aside for a second for some relatively quick-fire questions. Please don't feel under pressure, Christian. Um, so, Christian, if you had to play a game with death for your own mortal soul, what game are you best at? Oh, God. What game I... I'm not good at any games, is the weird truth. Like, And I think more people who write about games, this is honest, this is true for more of them than, than, you, would, than you would imagine. I think I'd play Civ. I think I'd play Civ, not because I'm good at it, but because death would maybe, I'm sure everyone says this, you play Civ because, no, I'd play Animal Crossing. There you go, play Animal Crossing. Oh, that is a good answer. And yeah, because he'd be like, what am I, he or she would be like, what am I doing killing people when I could actually just be out getting slightly better wallpaper? Both of you staring into the pond, watching the fireworks. Yeah, I think that would be a real moment between us. I can see that. You know, maybe um, Extreme would be playing more than words over the sound. <laughs> um, topical, topical reference. Are you? I mean, I'm taking it from that then that you're not a particularly competitive person. Have you ever been kind of locked in any uh, heated high score battles or competitive games? Yeah, my sister, I have a sister who I'm very close in age to, and people won't play games with us because we are, we're not competitive at all, but when we play games together, just there's something about the two of us playing games together, we become monsters. Um, and actually, weirdly, that's Cluedo. That's the board game Cluedo. We are absolute monsters at Cluedo. Uh, like, we're, A, we're very good at it, but B, um, we're just un, deeply unpleasant people. Monopoly in our house always brought, I think Monopoly is meant to do this, but yeah. everyone became very unpleasant and my wife when she had to play cluedo with us for the first time was like who are you people it was one christmas <laughs> who who actually who are you and can you get out of my house um and burnout as well so that's telling the the, the games jane and my sister janie and i the games we were competitive at were cluedo monopoly and burnout three um, maybe i played death at burnout three actually anyway yes so yes competitive in very limited circumstances okay um if um if you are prone to such things christian uh, what what is your worst rage quit oh god 
I don't rage quit. I tend to be um, either booted for doing something ridiculous uh, or I just sort of I diminish and become quieter and quieter until it all ends in embarrassment. I don't I don't have a lot of rage. No broken things? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It's more like just shame. Shame quit. <laughs> well, I I guess kind of kind of on the subject of shame. Like has there ever been a, a game that's kind of consumed your life to the point where you've had to delete it or uninstall it as it became a, a an obstacle? Yeah, uh, Clash uh, Clash Royale and Drop 7. Drop seven. I know a lot of people. Will Porter would email me and go, "I've deleted Drop Seven again," and it was the way that someone would email you and go, "You know, this time I'm never, I'm never taking X or Y again." Um, yeah, Drop Seven is definitely. There's something about that game. It's because it never looks like it's going to take a lot of your time. But Jeweled Blitz is the same. They never look like they're going to take a lot of your time. Those are the games which you t- you spend a lot of time on because they come in and they go, "Oh, only take like a minute." So let's just do. Let's just have a game for a minute, and then four hours later, you realise. Yep. Yeah, drop wasn't. seven is like a drop seven is essentially like a fruit machine for for scores for high scores because you never <laughs> yeah. know. You just you pull it, and then it reveals a little bit, and then maybe maybe this one maybe this one will work. Yeah, I love it, and I love it. I people, Mark Sorrell said that he thought it was broken because some things are not some some starting points are not as good as others. And you just think, well, that's kind of like life. Like, and no one. <laughs> and I think that's quite. I think that's lovely about it. That sometimes you're just never gonna. You're gonna do the best you can with the with the cards you're dealt. And that doesn't. I don't think people think poker's broken because it because there's this sort of starting randomness to it. But yeah, it's um, what a game. Oh, so good. That's uh, like a massive diss on Mark Sorrell. I didn't mean that. Diss no, that's fine. I, he he can take it. He's so big. I dis- he is he's a giant isn't he i disagree about drops having been broken um people don't roll of luck in games is important anyway sorry and clash royale as well i'm surprised at that one i get i don't know what how would that take up more time i guess i've only really recently played that though so maybe it hasn't oh. really sunk its teeth in completely yet it's just very it's very good at making you come back and it's very good at making you come back and again it tells you this is only gonna take three minutes and it never does only take three minutes because then there's always it just has a lot of different loops going on. I hate it when I hate it when um, people who write about games use kind of designery jargon like loops. But that game really does have like very visible loops. You know, here's your like here's your minute long loop, and here's your like five minutes, and here's your thirty minutes, and here's your hundred year loop. And um, I'm in, I'm well into the hundred year loop by this point. <laughs> um. Has a game ever been like? If you had to choose one, what would be like your 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 chicken soup game? You know, a game that you go to for for comfort, like a, a warm blanket. Oh God, God, that's a really good question. Um, I think that one changes all the time, weirdly. And at the moment, it's a game called uh, Fidel Dungeon Rescue, about a dog and a, going getting a dog through a dungeon. That's, Fidel that's... Dungeon Rescue. Yeah. I'm pronouncing it wrong, probably, but that's um, yeah, that's really there's something very um, not particularly calm, but it just makes you care, it makes you care in this really unusual way, um, and I think that's probably that's probably that. Uh, okay, and, and given the kind of the the, the range of uh, emotional responses games are able to to evoke, uh, one of the rarest is, is is laughter. So, Christian, what games have really made you laugh? 
Oh man, I I should have held on to Spy versus Spy until now, shouldn't I? Um, I tell you, the game that made me laugh the most is uh, the Saboteur, the EA uh, open world game about an Irishman winning the Second World War in Paris. Have you played this game? I don't think I have. Right, it's terrible, but it's terrible in a brilliant way. I think it's 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 our generation's boiling point in that it's broken in <laughs> such a clearing way. And um, there's one moment in this game where you meet up. So it's so your classic open world, you know. Bullshit. It's relatively recent, right? The last couple of years. I think, I think it's more like, I think it's the last couple of years, which probably means it's like 10 years okay. ago. <laughs> it's not, I was not with my wife when I reviewed it. Um, so... Yeah, there's a moment in this game where you meet up with these the sexy British age, British agent and like you know these other the French like everyone is a terrible cliche in this game you know the French explosives guy and you all have this secret meeting in this pub and you plan the overthrow of the occupying forces in Paris and then they all leave and I went out I thought that meeting went quite well I now know what my next three missions are and I walked around the corner and everyone's everyone had got in their car and they'd all driven their cars up separate walls <laughs> they're all just sort of agent. <laughs> a building and like there were just three cars pointed in different directions all jammed into the scenery <laughs> engines going like maybe a door i have a real clear memory of the british spy her door had come off and she's just kind of working <laughs> and but like again like you know i you know totally calm about it like yeah i meant to drive up the side of this building in Paris. <laughs> so yeah that that was that was and the game is full of that it's full of that stuff and um Oh, it's it's skate three levels of com. I mean, skate three is like the funniest game ever, right? Like I've watched those compilations of skate three for years and years and years. Um, <laughs> that's, in fact, that's chicken soup right there. Is not even a game. It's YouTube videos of skate three. <laughs> but yeah, those games are very funny. EA went through a period where they made really funny games by accident, and I, I miss those days. <laughs> um, so so y- y- you're playing um. You're playing Animal Crossing and you're working at Booper. So, so how did you end up uh, getting into to games? So Edge magazine, um, we used to, Stu and I were obsessed with Edge, and um, we used to wonder about. I mean, like we, used, like we were really. I know you were on the forums. We were never ever on the. Forums. I was such a non-internet person. I was never on the forums. So loads of people who ended up working at Edge or sort of involved in Edge all came through the forums. Yeah, like you, many of which have been on the show. Yeah, and I was never a part of that at all. I, I was just I was not an internet person. Um, and I'm still not in a weird way, um, which sounds ridiculous considering I write for the internet. Um, but um, so we used to, we used to, you know, every Thursday, Edge Thursday was a big thing and we'd go to Smith's and all that stuff. And one Thursday they had, it wasn't even a, an article. It was a caption. It just said, oh, if you want to try writing something, we're looking, they were looking for a staff writer, but they were like, if you want to try writing an article, we're looking for freelancers to send something in. And I did that thing of saying to Stu, oh, you should do this. You should, you should write in. And then Stu didn't do it. And then I was like, well, actually, then can I do it? Which is probably what I wanted all along. <laughs> and I wrote, um, I always feel slightly weird talking about Edge. I feel like it, like it was a secret society that we all briefly belonged to. And you're not meant to talk about what you did. 
you're just meant to sort of put on your purple robe and go and meet the other. Oh, they have bylines there. It's fine. It's all it's all open. But um, so I, I wrote um a time extension. So Edge had this. You, you all know that you it, the greatest feature magazine history video game magazine history time extend mm-hmm. um where they looked at an old game through a particular lens and it just felt at the time that people hadn't done this before we were always so like what's next what's coming out now what's what's next what's next what's next um and this was the first one which looked back not nostalgically in a kind of like does anyone remember curly whirlies kind of radio dj kind of phoning if you remember curly whirlies sort of way but like to go back <laughs> and look at what was interesting about a game and some of them were just really beautiful pieces. Of, I mean, they were all beautiful, but but they were. It, it felt that Edge hit a particular high note during Time Extend, and um, I thought, God, I'd really like to write a Time Extend. I don't know what I'm doing. And I remember I um, I I tried to count <laughs> how many words were in your typical Time Extend, and I was out by six hundred, um, which is the story of my life. But I counted. <laughs> Um, I remember which one it was. It was Radiant Silvergun, which it turns out was written by my close friend now, Simon Parkin. I, I should, oh God, I'm really not meant to say who wrote these things. Um, and I wrote one on PN3. Do you remember the Capcom 5 game for the GameCube? Yes, yes, yes. Shinji Mikami. Shinji, it's the Shinji Mikami game, which no one can quite remember that he made. And then a bunch of people go, well, you know, actually, it's sort of his best game. And that's not true either, but it's brilliant. It is brilliant. I wrote a piece about that and I sent it in and what I didn't realize I don't think the piece was very good but what I didn't realize was they had a real pain in the ass getting time extends written each month um and so the thing which I assumed everyone would want to write turned out was the thing which not many people wanted to write at all and so they published it I mean I had to go away and rewrite it and add another 600 words to it but um yeah that was really great that's amazing <laughs> and that was that was a pretty special uh moment like going to smith's and knowing it was it was god i really bought into the whole thing it wasn't just knowing that my article was going to be an edge it was knowing that i really shouldn't tell anyone about it do you know what i mean it's like it's an edge but also i can't I, i can't really talk about it i really didn't i instinctively felt that because there were no bylines you shouldn't talk about it you shouldn't talk about who did what and all this stuff I, I took it way too seriously but that's sort of part of the appeal of it and i tell you what i thought that's great that was nice and now i'll go back to um working at booper and all this stuff and i mean there were other things like i was i'd written children's television by this point but that was children's television do you know what it was i like i didn't watch i had no idea television. that you did kids tv oh, what, what did you yeah. do uh, um, you don't I wrote, have to tell um, me. <laughs> you clearly, sorry how much how excited I'm about this. I wrote a series called, um, and no one ever remembers the things when I say, "Oh, I wrote this and this." Everyone's like, "Oh, I've never heard of those things," um, which is good because I'm generally not talking to sort of 15 year olds who would have been. <laughs> um, I, I wrote a series called Ng Benji. Um, I didn't create it, but I sort of wrote a bunch of episodes of that. I wrote one episode of Fireman Sam. I wrote the oh, Halloween what? episode. I write with I, all of this with my writing partner and the, the more talented one, Jonathan Davis, um, who is the leading force in this. Um, we wrote the Halloween episode of Fireman Sam. I wrote a Welsh thing called Hannah's Helpline. We did a French, oh God, we did a science fiction kids show um, for France, which was amazing. It was not amazing, but it was just amazing dealing with incredibly rude uh script notes uh 
work from the French producer, <laughs> which they had been, um, uh, they, we didn't realize at the time, but they were using some kind of translation software to put our scripts into French. And they were reading <laughs> mangled English, in, in mangled French, and then putting their notes back to us in, in, through this same software. So we were getting it sort of like double, double translated. And we were like, they were like, they were like, why have you called a character the invoice? <laughs> we'd, called him, we'd called him Bill. And the <laughs> the translation software, <laughs> and so. But on top of that, we were also terrible at writing. So they had very accurate. Um, they were unhappy with us for all of the right reasons. But Invoice, yeah, so, that is an amazing name. I'm determined to put something in a script. A character called the Invoice. It was very hard when not. I think it it puts you in science fiction territory probably a little bit. Uh, the invoice. I always thought it'd be funny to have a character who was always explaining things to people, and to call him Cliff Notes. <laughs> but, um, but that's that. The fact that I think that's funny is probably proof that I shouldn't be uh, writing. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So, but Edge was Edge was totally different. It was something I was really excited about. And when I did that first time extender, I'm thinking, well, that was nice, and that's never going to happen again. But then. Um, they they wanted they are margaret emailed uh margaret robertson who's been on the show mm-hmm. uh, emailed and said would you like to write some other things and i just thought i don't know if i could deal with this this is just the greatest thing ever um and god yeah that was amazing it was it was like i just remember genuinely not not coming down from that one ever you know writing for edge was that exciting i don't think i've ever really recovered from it that's amazing <laughs> I mean, just based on what you've said, though, like it does seem that because you weren't on on the internet and stuff, and it was just you and your pal Stu playing games, like that must have opened up a whole new world of of people as well, you know, to to a certain extent. It did very slowly because I was quite shy, and also edge people were quite intimidating. Like, um, I think the thing about I've never really understood the, the the way people particularly people who don't like Edge, sort of the sort of the feelings they have about it, that it's very austere and it's very lofty and it's sort of, like I said, like academic. And it's not at all. When Margaret was writing for it in particular, there was this incredible warmth to it. It was unsigned, but it had such a sense of warmth. Like, it helps that I think Margaret is one of like the two greatest games writers ever, mm-hmm. um, which, 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 which helps. <laughs> but... Um, it was. It had this sort of. It was very. There was. It was like having older brothers and older sisters who just were cool and knew everything, and um and were willing to tell you about it. That's what it was like. Um, and I think that can be quite bad. I I don't think I ever. I wrote for Edge for. Uh, I don't know how long, but seventy issues. I did seventy issues at Edge, just as a freelancer. So I mean, like when I say I did seventy issues, I meant I did like five pages now and then um yeah but i don't think i ever did anything i don't think i think i don't think i really brought anything to it i think like i think uh, i'm i don't think i added much to it but it was still amazing to be a part of it um i'm and I think, certain that you did christian you talk yourself no, down far too much looking back like i think i was defeated by um i think Having said all that thing about the warmth that there was there, I think I fell into that trap of thinking that there was an edge voice and then thinking that I should do it. 
Um, And I think, look back, and I don't think a lot of my stuff is very good for Edge, uh, which is a shame, but I think the odd piece was good. Um, But like, yeah, looking back, I I think it was, I think I was, I was the bits that you would probably skip over (laughs) in each issue and go, oh, you know, got to be a few duck pages here and there. But it was great. It was a, a real, it, at the same time as I was writing slightly crap articles for them, I was learning such a lot. And it was, uh, you just couldn't have a better education, even if it took me a very long time to learn the things I should have been learning. It was great. It was amazing. And to be around people who thought about games on such a different level. Yeah. Um, not just Edge, but like everyone at Future was just like, God. They've just had some brilliant, brilliant people there, you know. I'm and, so thrilled um, to hear how the... exciting it is for you that you know it's not that everyone else is kind of anyone else I've spoken to about kind of working in the games press is like, oh yeah, well that didn't work out, so I just got a job at a magazine. Like everybody is quite exciting, but it, it seems much more palpable. Like it's such a uh, it's such a delight to hear that you were so so thrilled about it what was i saying oh yeah so because you kind of had this kind of fairly large chunk of, of games that that you missed and you're kind of all in again all of a sudden like what were the the games that stand out for you from this kind of period oh god I, so um from that when i think about xbox one and gamecube era obviously like loads of stuff on the gamecube were like like you know the gamecube just was such a magical machine hit after hit after hit really um, and the one I remember from Xbox One, uh, Xbox, the original Xbox, not Xbox, um, the, the game I remember more than anything is Jet Set Radio Future, which was just, oh my God, that game is so special. That Did you play it, Jet Set Radio Future? I don't think I ever did, actually. I had Jet Set Radio for the Dreamcast, but I, I, never, had, I never had an original Xbox. Jet Set Radio Future is secretly a million times better than Jet Set Radio 1. And Jet Set Radio 1's good, but Future's just the best. And I remember playing that for hours and hours and hours and just feeling transported. And um, it, it's that thing of being high up in a skyscraper city and being above. It's all about sort of, I don't know, games allow you to explore this kind of weird isolation where you're above, you're above or you're away from people, you know. And... Yeah. and that was very special. I spent a lot of time late at night playing Jet Set Radio Future, just being, just exploring, trying to get as high as I could on these in these cities, and trying to be, get as far away from everyone as I could, and then sort of leap back down into the into the mass of it. Is what an amazing game! But yeah, though, that's the game I remember really from that era. With the, the sort of freelance work, then what what ultimately led you on to to Eurogamer? Um. So there were a lot of a lot of things. So I got married, and um, we wanted to uh, have a baby, and it did. It just felt that I was leading this slightly precarious life, being a freelancer. I was also working like an insane. Like it seems like obviously not student nurse hours. My wife was a student nurse once, and whenever I say, "Oh God, I used to work a long time as a as a uh, as a freelancer," she yeah. reminds me of sort of shifts on A and E and stuff <laughs> like that. But um, I was working um, longer than I wanted to, and I was probably the like the work was suffering, um, and I I was just not doing a very good job. And I started writing for Eurogamer 
um, because people I'd worked with with at Edge went across there and they would sort of occasionally send me an article. And I just remember thinking, Eurogamer is doing something really special, actually. Everyone has their own voice, which you, which is so different to Edge. And I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just different. And you're encouraged to have your own voice. And the site is a collection of these different voices. And they don't have to agree and they don't have to balance each other out. They just exist in sort of – they're just individual voices writing about games. And the one thing they hopefully share is that they all have something worth sort of listening to. And yeah. I just remember thinking, God – I'd quite like to have something worth listening to. <laughs> so maybe if I go over there a little bit, I'll learn how to do that. And I remember being very scared of writing for the internet. And it is scary writing for the internet. It's bruising and it's horrible. And the worst moments are when the, they're right and you've messed up. Those are the definite worst moments. But it's also amazing. It was, it was, that was, was really good. So is there a particular game- difference though? I mean, aside from obviously like comments and things like that, like is there... A kind of a more tangible kind of difference between writing to the the press and writing for the internet oh yeah definitely so like for the for magazines your, your word count a lot of my stuff on edge it felt like i was just compacting it i was just trying to fit the same amount of sugar not that it was very sweet and delicious or the same amount of sand into a smaller <laughs> um, box do you know what i mean yeah i spent a lot of time they call it um there's a wonderful expression for it called greening and it's to do with how they used to edit at Time magazine, I think. Just working out which parts of a sentence you can remove and it still scans. Which is a re- when I look back, at, and I never did it very well, look back and uh, occasionally reread something of Edge when I'm trying to fact check something about a game I've forgotten about. The work is just so dense. My, my, not everyone else's, but mine was particularly just dense and clumsily dense. Um, and with the the internet, you don't have that. No one ever goes, can you give me exactly, you know, at Edge sometimes they would lay out, if it was, if you were up against it, they would lay out the pages and you would have to write onto the, the layout. And I remember going to Uncharted, seeing Uncharted 2 in um, Santa Monica and knowing that I was going to see it, the the game in the morning, and I was going to have to write an edge cover in the afternoon back at the hotel, and knowing that this piece had to be, I think it was like two thousand six hundred and fifty words long, because it had already been laid out, because we were holding back the printing to just to get this game in there, and you don't have that at all with the internet. You don't have that word count, and that's a problem because it means that people like me write far too much. <laughs> But um, but also it's it's just very different. It's very different when you when you sit down to write and you go, this is going to be however long it needs to be. Whereas it's very different to sitting down and go, I've got to do all of this and I've got to do it in eight hundred words. That's completely different, and what comes out is very different. Uh, but, Does that but, make sense? No, it makes total sense. But but like you seem to have adapted to it like remarkably well. Was it just? No, just got like really terrible habits, really relaxed into terrible, like relaxed into no word counts, like someone easing into a bubble bath. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? I'm just going to write any old crap. Oh, brilliant. You know, and of course, people come in and hopefully take out the first paragraph and all that stuff. But yeah, it's been um, it's been it's been bad in a way, but it's also been like because, bad in a way that like the first time you use I in an article after you've written for Edge. You don't really know how it's going to go. Um, but sometimes it's a little too appealing to, to kind of the personal 
I always think games writing is not personal enough. But then sometimes I look back at something and I go, I put myself in that article and there's no reason for me to be there. What was I? <laughs> you know what I mean? I do, um, but I also like that is that is the stuff I, I most gravitate towards. Like I, I want that because that's, I mean, the alternative, I guess, is like just really cold and treating games like, you know, like appliances well, and stuff. And I, I don't enjoy that. I think there's a middle ground. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it's just that's not no, 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 what I'm no, drawn no, no. to. I, I sort of struggle with this. Um, it's not a very interesting or noble struggle, obviously, but I do struggle with this a little bit. And the thing I keep coming back to is Margaret's writing always had such personality and she never said I, and she never told you a funny story about growing up in Edinburgh or anything like that. It was just the connection was there because what she was saying was warm. She was it, She was communicating warmth but intelligence and precision and she did it all with virtually no um gimmicks you know god amazing it, um and i know that like i say i think there's like a couple of games writers who are just streets ahead of everyone else and uh, she is one of them but it proves it can be done and it's good to have someone out there who was doing it because occasionally you can think god yeah i should be a should be a bit more like that <laughs> absolutely I, I think probably she's probably on a par with you in terms of the people whose work I've, I've referenced countless times because there are so many little just beautiful um you know it's, it's one of the best things a writer is able to offer somebody is the ability to kind of articulate something that they were they had not been able to articulate before and just that's, something slotting into place in your brain it's like oh of course that's that's what that means that is the best Thing anyone can ever say about right i really think that i was funnily enough i was thinking this exact thought you're gonna to have to edit me down so much i'm so sorry i'm not Pardon gonna edit you I'm, I'm gonna edit all of you talking yourself down that's what i'm gonna edit Harley is ms like i start talking i just can't stop because i lose track of myself but but that thing that you're talking about writers who can put things put the explain the world to you in a way that you've always felt but you've never been able to express that is the most important i like i don't I don't think I do it, but I think Margaret does it, and I think. Um, oh, you do that. That your your article about Spelunky is uh, oh, just God, so amazing. <laughs> um, but I'm sure you don't I like mean, to hear that, but it's it's unfortunately yeah. true. Maybe I like it a bit too much. Um, but, <laughs> I read. Uh, have you read *Hs for Hawk* by Helen Macdonald? I haven't. Um, no. I'm very oh badly read. No, 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 no. Well, there's two books I read recently: *Hs for Hawk*. Uh, by Helen MacDonald, which is a book about um, dealing with your uh, father's death while also training a goshawk. And um, the other book, and I talk about this so much, and I, um, I bore everyone at the office has a special face they adopt when I start talking about this. But The Vanishing Man about Velasquez uh, by uh, this Spanish painter by Laura Cumming, the observer art critic, is one of the best books I've ever read. And um, the thing I love about it is it has all these, she's talking about Velasquez, this painter, she's talking about these paintings he did. And she has loads of the paintings printed quite nicely in the book. And you look at them and you feel all of these emotions when you look at these paintings. You go, God, you know, I, re I feel something about this and I can't quite put it into words. And then when you read about that painting in the book, she has absolutely put into words what I felt. Um, and it's just an incredible thing. And you think like that is important it's showing you something new but it's also showing you that that was kind almost within your grasp do you know what i mean that, that you almost could, yeah yeah and and that's 
when writing, I think that is the best writing gets to when it shows you the world in a way that you have not articulated it before, but you know it is true. And I think, um, yeah, I think that's a very special, a very special thing. And I think Margaret Robertson could do it. And I think in a very different, I'm going to name check the other person I think is the best writer. Sorry. Everyone's um, wondering, sorry. so it's fine. Sorry, everyone else. Uh, Tom Francis does it in a very different way, but he does it as well. Um, has he has he been on the show? Tom? He's not been on the show yet. No, I just heard him on the Eurogamer show actually a, a few weeks ago. Oh, it was he's, great. He's the best. He's the best. Um, he's amazing. He's like properly. It's. I'm not going to embarrass him by saying what it's like to know him, but it's it's extraordinary. He's an absolute. <laughs> Have you had Michael Cook on the show? Well, I'm just going to go off on here now and ask you. Here's my quick fire round. Yeah, All I don't. People... No, I don't know Michael Cook. Oh, he's um, you, but you know of him. I do don't you? know. I actually I don't. Oh. Angelina, he's created an AI that makes its own games. Oh, what? Oh, yeah, no, he's amazing. Okay, I'll, I should put you in touch. He's brilliant. And um, I went to interview him a couple of years ago, and he said something so profound that I'm still thinking about it. Um, uh, can I tell you very briefly about this? We've oh, absolutely. No, 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 please do. He, uh, he's very brilliant. Um, and he was at UCL in, no, was he at UCL or was he, no, he was at Imperial, sorry. Or was, no, was he at UCL? No, he was at Imperial. Okay. Imperial London. So I was already um, intensely, um, I felt uh, academia shame just walking in there. But he's incredibly <laughs> generous with his thoughts and he's incredibly, he's just a very special man. He's created this AI that makes its own games. And, um, that you play them and they're not good games that's kind of the point they're, they're fucking terrible but they are made by a an ai and um at the end of it i was like oh you know this is all very this is all very neat michael but like why what why what is this all really about other than just sort of entertaining ourselves and he gave me an answer that was so good like i couldn't get over it he said we he, his answer was so much better than my question. <laughs> so I was like, why, but like, why are you really doing this? Because, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, we think that we know what intelligence is like, but actually we only really know human intelligence. And Angelina, his AI, is never going to be human. But one day, you know, hundreds and thousands of years in the future, AI will be will actually be intelligent and it won't be human intelligence. And that's the point. And so these games that this AI is making, ultimately the, the, the end goal of it isn't for it to make a game which you go, oh, that's really good. A human could have made this. The end goal of it is for it to make something and it goes, I am not like you, but I am looking at you. And here is what you look like to me. So in a way he's kind of making AI could work it's funny, we're so afraid of AI. And we're afraid of AI because we think that it's gonna be as shitty as we are. And sometimes, I don't think we're shitty at all, I think we're you know, kind of wonderful, but like, we think we, we give it all of our fears about ourselves. Like, and that's why The Guardian every so often does an, an article, which I always love reading, but like going, oh my God, AI is totally racist and sexist, you know, like they've created this AI, <laughs> just telling like really racist jokes all the time, something like that. Um, but actually, it's not going to be like us, and maybe that's tremendously exciting and uplifting. It's going to—we're going to have the chance to meet 
something that is intelligent and doesn't think the way we do. I mean, I, 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 I do see your point, and I, I love the optimism in it, but I also, I mean, it's probably more down to, to my own biases sort of projecting onto it as well. Like, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I, I think there is potential for it to be wonderful, but I also am, I'm just, I always think of like the kind of the, oh, make the world a better place, and then it just nukes everybody. It's like, there you go, like the very sort of logical response to something. Um, I need to. I'm gonna to have to stop it a second because it's gotten really bad. Um, give me two minutes. I'm just gonna quickly restart. Is that okay? And then we'll do like another sort of fifteen minutes to close up. Hello, hello. No, that's okay. Skype generally, like after an, an hour and a half or something, it goes a bit wonky. Is this okay? Right. I, I don't want to keep you too long. We'll we'll finish oh, up in a sec. I have days where this is going to sound weird, but I have days where I can't speak properly and I have days where I can. And so today, magically, I'm talking all right. So I'm happy to keep going. I didn't know what which me you were going to get because one of me is very stumbly. And uh, so I'm very happy to talk while I can talk, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I'm curious about this. So this is, this is are you okay to talk about that? Because I'm just curious as yeah, the effects of absolutely. it. So, so you have MS, right? You recently had. Yeah, I, I have. Um, I have. I, yeah, I mean, I've become a bit of, it's become a bit of a cliche, me talking about, I mean, a cliche only to me because I'm only famous in my own head. But um, yeah, I do. So I was um, diagnosed, uh, my daughter it was born four years ago. And then about four months afterwards, I um, started to have odd things going on. Um, my fingers started to tingle. But then even before that, which I hadn't noticed, um, I had started to, <laughs> this sounds really ridiculous. I started to miss door handles when I was reaching for them. And okay. like I put, put them in the door and it wouldn't go in the, it wouldn't go in the, in the lock. And there are all these little things you do in life. And once I point it out, it will drive you mad. But there's loads of things you do in life without really looking at them. You do these things just so instinctively, opening doors, opening bottles, you know, uh, writing, uh, putting keys in the door and stuff like that. And, and it all just started to fall apart for me. I was about, I was always about two inches away from where, no, inches too big. I was about an inch away from where I thought I was all the time if I wasn't looking yeah and, um obviously because it's so ridiculous you don't notice that you don't realize that the last hundred times you reach for a door handle you've just clawed your way through empty air um but yeah and then everything just started to um a, a load of convert like what do they call it doctors like converging symptoms I had a lot of okay. <laughs> symptoms um and then one day I woke up, my hands were just tingling like absolute crazy. And um, some very unusual things happened to me that week. And yeah, um, and then over the course of, sort of six, six or seven months, I was, I was uh, eventually diagnosed with MS. Uh, do I need to say, should I say what MS is? Just to, I suppose is, just for the clarification, I mean, uh, yeah, for, for the listeners, free, feel, if, that's, if that's okay, yeah. No, feel free to cut this bit because this is like... Uh, Donlan going on about his illness. No, I'm gonna I'm uh, gonna bring it back on topic. I'm gonna bring it crashing on topic if needs be, but I'm gonna do it. Um, 
so MS is a, a neurological condition, but it's also an autoimmune condition. So you have this thing called your immune system, um, and it also and it is there to protect you from infection. You have these little things that go around inside your bloodstream called uh, lymphocytes and other things called macrophages. Lymphocytes are like hitmen in my my paired back way of looking at it. Lymphocytes are like hitmen, and macrophages are like uh, like garbage trucks. <laughs> and they go <laughs> together. They smash up things that they're not meant to see, and then they get rid of them. Macrophages actually sort of eat them. Um, and these are great when you have an infection, but they're not great if they accidentally get into your, your central nervous system, um, at which point they appear to start. We don't really know, but like, um, they, they, your immune system attacks the coating on the nerves, um, in the central nervous system. They have this coating called myelin which is fatty coating which in which is cool stuff actually it's amazing all of the science of this stuff is incredibly cool um but um nerves have lots of nerve cells have lots of inputs called dendrites they have one big output generally called an axon and sometimes but not always on the axon there's this fatty stuff called myelin which speeds up the electrical signal passing down it um but when uh, your immune system attacks it, it can create something called a conduction block and it stops the electrical signal. It slows it or it stops it. Okay. Um, and it means that your brain, which is your only, your brain really all it does, uh, I just said one of those, every neurologist <laughs> in the country is angry if they hear this, but a lot of what your brain does is moving electrical signals around and MS um, muddles that quite a lot. So they get, they get, slower they don't get where they're going and it just means um that lots of crazy things can happen to you but also what i now realize is that um the very fact that you're being diagnosed with something so life-changing means that lots of crazy things are going to happen to you anyway because you're going to go a little bit funny about it of course and so you know, you're going to, I, I spoke to, I know a couple of people who have MS as well. And I said to them, like, did you, are there things that you just, they were real or not? And everyone, part of MS is trying to work out which is, what is real and what is kind of a hysterical reaction to not knowing what's going on. Anyway, 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 anyway. Um, I can't remember how we got onto this. That's the other thing is I can't remember how I got onto anything anymore. No, no, I, I, I did prompt that because I was curious about it. And, and, and as I said, I am going to bring it crashing on topic because, um, oh, like, good. without wanting to kind of trivialize this illness that that affects like many many people around the world, like, how did it affect your relationship with games? Just because it's kind of a unique shift in, in because of things like that, like you're talking about the the electrical signals can can get muddled. Yeah. So how does that affect your your enjoyment, or maybe it enhances it in some aspects? I don't know. If I'd ever be good at games, it would be a problem. I saw um, I saw Doctor Strange recently, the Marvel film, and his his hand not to spoil anything, but his hands shake and he can no longer be a neurosurgeon. And my wife turned to me and said, essentially, like it's good that you didn't do anything important. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I think there is some truth in that. But if I'd been really good at games, if I'd been like. Um, an elite esports person, it would have been a pain. But I'm not actually. 
and um, it hasn't changed it that much. I think I see things as everyone does. I think I see things in games which speak to me on a personal level because of this. Yes. So I wrote a piece about um, Spelunky and XCOM and how I had developed a love for them, which which felt that it was related to dealing with my um, diagnosis. In that I was, there were places to sort of experiment with failure, and I think this is the, something that I like in general. Is I like I'm interested in failure and the kind of creative force of failure. It's weird. My friend uh, Simon Parkin is very interested in success as a sort of creative force in the world and something that messes people up and stuff like that. Much more interested in sort of uh failure and um i felt like these were games which were very at home with catastrophe things bad things happen to you in spelunky and XCOM, and you just have to keep going through it you have to go through whatever is bad and you have to try and work out a way to keep you see what even in this ridiculous mediated form of a video game you sort of see that disaster is not the end of something it's and i think when you read um Oliver Sacks, you know, the, the great uh, neurologist, he, in Anthropologist on Mars in particular, he talks about people whose lives have been changed, but not necessarily, I mean, obviously for the worst, because neurological disease is awful, but he talks about people who's have done things, extraordinary things because of their neurological diseases rather than um, purely despite them. Do you know what I mean? I do, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I suddenly, I, I, this all was wrapped up in my mind when I was thinking about this. But like, I, I, the other thing I would say, so I wrote that piece shortly after I was diagnosed and it's very zen and it makes you think, oh, he's really handling this. He's really on top of this. And I wasn't at all. Like I wasn't, I didn't know what I was fucking talking about. I had had a, a diagnosis for like maybe three or four months when I wrote that piece. And, um, and it just, it changed a lot and I changed a lot and I, I, I was like, I had trouble speaking. Um, and, and then that would come and go and it still does come and go a little bit, but, um, do you know what I mean? Like it's never as easy as the sort of the truism of like this X helped me deal with. Of course. Y. Yeah, of course. But I think in the, I think the danger with that piece is that I make it look like it is that simple. And it's not. It, what it is is X helped me deal with Y at this point. And then my understanding of Y changed and X wasn't as fucking useful anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's always another, there's always another um, thing that comes along. I think um, disease and... In fact, Susan Sontag was it, wrote disease as a metaphor. But I think disease especially incurable disease you're you're searching for a metaphor to understand it all the time and the metaphor is always changing um it's always this you know it's definitely this it's definitely XCOM, <laughs> and then one week it's definitely spelunky and then the next week it's not a game at all it's something else so um but yeah uh does that make sense like, no I, it totally I, does like i, I it's a, it's not really comparable but i i've got i've had it since i was a kid i've had rheumatoid arthritis like i'm riddled oh. with it at this point which is uh, again oh. like a an autoimmune disease. I have no idea. Damn, I'm so sorry. I'm, oh no, it's like, it's fine. It's fine. I'm uh, I'm fine. God, I feel terrible. There's me banging on about that. But are you? Does it? Because that that comes and goes as well, right? That has a it waxes and wanes with with the weather yeah. as much as that appears like a, an old wives' tale. I've, I've found it to be true. Um, but the, to I, me, it's kind of I had it when I was I had it since I was about four, and it was in my knee, 
and just as i get older it sort of gradually finds its way to other joints and as yet it hasn't got to my hands at all and that's always been like since i was a kid it's like i'm just waiting for that to happen that's because i love my hands i I do magic i play video games and stuff do uh yeah oh my god i hadn't you know i had no idea oh there's no reason that you would there's no reason that you would but this is the other thing about this is a, a thing that is worth saying is that um I became very self-involved. I mean, I was always self-involved, uh, but MS made me intensely self-involved, partly because you were meant to be examining, you're meant to be constantly going like, is this, what is happening right now? Yeah. You know, what's going on? Is this normal? Am I meant to feel this way? Am I, is is the disease taking a new turn or something? But then the, the, the other side of that is you start to think for a brief period, you really start to think you're the only person in the world who's sick, which is so ridiculous. And what's actually been really lovely one very positive thing about having MS, and there have been, you know, I won't say there are positive things about having MS, but there are things we take away from it which make me profoundly happy about, about that I'm privileged that I've got to experience these things, is people will tell you about what's going on with you. And I've got a, what's going on with them, and I've got a lot of emails after I wrote that piece of people who I know, and I'd never ever said to them, how are you, are you all right? You know, what's going on, with, what's going on in your life? Yeah. A lot of emails from people just saying like, I just want you to know that I have this going on, you know, this is happening to me. And all of these people, all of these problems which seemed far more, I don't know, it just, I don't know, I was just, it was an amazing insight into the things that, when I have a problem, I just can't shut up about it and that everyone has to know. <laughs> and I've written multiple pieces about having MS. But there are so many people who are just dealing with things and just dealing with it quietly and with this kind of insane nobility. Um, but, and that, that's been really wonderful to just get a better understanding of people i wish um i don't know what i want to say but uh, what i want to say is i hope you're feeling i hope it i hope you're not feeling too bad at the moment i hope the same for you christian oh no fine honestly i'm absolutely fine but um and also i'm just happy to talk about it so I'll, even if it gets really bad i'll just bang on about it for the rest of my life <laughs> listen um, it's good you can live the gimmick as they say <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, certainly. The only problem is that there is a lot of uh, door closing going on. But yes, it's, um, it's good. Anyway, sorry. No, no, it's good. Well, let's, um, I guess we'll sort of bring things to a close. But I just, I wanted you to maybe talk about any games. Like, I think it's much harder the older people get, like, to have these the same kind of formative experiences you have when you're younger. But but are there any games that stand out from maybe the past, like, seven or eight years that, that really sort of struck a chord with you for, for whatever reason? Oh, there are loads. There are, like the problem is there are too many. Like, I it's funny how I, I started off by complaining that in the older days that you know the old days were better because we didn't have a show genre and all that stuff. But actually, games these days are incredible. What an amazing year we've had! With, oh, like, it's unbelievable. Martin Robinson and I at work a lot of the time we're just kind of going, "Can you fucking believe the games that are coming out this year? It's insane!" Like, um, Edith Finch. Have you played Edith Finch? I haven't played it yet, actually. Oh my God, it's amazing. My friend Parkin said to me, he said, you're going to like it because it's about a very big, strange family who all meet very mysterious ends. And I come from quite a big, strange family and there has been a lot of sort of <laughs> mysterious death in, in that <laughs> front. So, but it, it spoke to me in that front, uh, being one of five, that, that, that game really spoke to me. And also, I can't pronounce this properly because it's French, but there's a, a PC game called Sang, I'm going to say Sang Froid. It means cold blood in French, right? Um, and it's about werewolves. And I was just 
changing from being a console person to being a PC person, and this remarkable PC game that's very strange. Again, actually, sort of genre-wise, very hard to to explain what it is. That that one really um, captivated me like nothing else, and I recommend it. I don't think I'm um, even I could even picture that game. It's not it's not a looker. But actually, no, that's not fair. It actually is. It's one of those games that has its own very distinct look. But um, yeah, that was amazing. There's just so many. I mean, like I'll, I'll put the put Skype turn Skype off, and I'll think of another dozen. But yeah, those two particularly from the last few years have really, really hit a chord. And then of course, there's stuff which is like Next Machina is just amazing. Oh my god, it's so good. Yeah, it's so brilliant. It's so it's so brilliant. Um, but yeah, it, it feels like there's something incredible coming out every other week which is um Do you know i'd almost exciting. forgotten about next machina that's how bad this is because I, I i finally got to play zelda uh, a friend of mine loaned me his his wii u so i've pretty much just been in in breath of the wild for the past month or so in the little gaming time i get but yeah i i haven't played next machina it's uh, like it, since the first week i guess when i played it non-stop yeah no it's 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 very like like i said games are amazing at the moment it's they are very, amazing it's very exciting um yeah. and it's still it's still an amazing job to to sort of live around them and write about them and stuff like that i'm gonna uh, to, to try and create a, a nice kind of uh, narrative loop um i'm curious as to what what your parents thought about your your video game uh, your love of video games like what 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 would, were they ever involved in any video games did they ever play them with you or no, they weren't. I don't know. They were. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think. I think my dad has seen um, my sister go out with a lot of men who were like dangerously involved in COD and stuff like that. The game rather than the fish. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I think so. I think he has this idea increasingly of games as something that are addictive and maybe. Uh, scope this that, that, that maybe narrow the scope of a person's life slightly um we don't talk about it that much um but uh, but i think actually i think maybe he has a point sometimes uh, one of the weird things about writing about games is i feel that we all grew up at a point where we were having to be evangelists for games at the same time because the mortal combat trial was going on in the states and you went to school and everyone was saying like games are the worst thing in the world blah 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 and so you're constantly like no they're not they're amazing and i feel like some of i feel like we've carried that through to the point that we sometimes we defend things when we shouldn't when we shouldn't be defending them you know there's a lot as an adult there's a lot with games i love games i hope we've made that clear but there's a lot of games a lot of elements of games which i actually find increasingly problematic and um, I think the next generation of games writers and YouTubers and, and people like that, they won't have had to shout as loudly for games. Maybe they will be able to see them a little more clearly. Or maybe I'm talking absolute fucking nonsense. No, 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 that, that makes total sense. Like, and it's part of the reason why kind of... Like, one of the things I love about doing the show so much is is because of the the kind of the relative youth of the video game industry, I guess, like a lot of the people I speak to tend to be around about my age, like a few years either side. And it has been this extraordinary kind of 
a journey where if you love games as a kid you you've literally grown up with them and they, they've transformed as you've got older and they go through phases and and now you're seeing games like games that are made now by people probably you know younger than me but like referring to things that i i know about and you know it, it's 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 an amazing kind of period like slice of time you know i i think this show in 30 40 years if 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 someone did a similar thing it would be very different you get a different a lot of different stories have you had steve curran on yeah episode two steve curran oh, yeah he's have you heard his um he does this incredible talk called double tap about shooters i've not no this is the the newer one the latest one isn't it it's the one before the latest one i mean i think he's he's a genius and there's no one else doing what he does but um he gives this talk about about games and guns and it's very profound uh it's he made a quite noisy room just completely silent with this piece uh and it does make you think god i'm doing a lot of shooting people in games um and i it makes you wonder because you think like i don't i've never really wanted to own a gun i've never liked guns i don't think it, you know, I don't. I don't think all oh, guns. They they seem nice. I think that's a, that was a tagline for cult in the seventies. Yeah, no. It's, but do you know what I mean? It's weird. <laughs> I do. No, I do. Why am I why why am I spending so many times so much time playing these things which don't reflect the way I feel about things? And I mean, like, there's two answers to that. A lot of shooting in games is not really shooting in games. I get that, but. Um, and, and of course, there's also the massive scope of games now, increasingly, which don't revolve around these these things. And I understand historically why guns are in games, because it's very easy to, you know, people are good at judging Absolutely. vectors, and here's, here's the thing. But um, I do, I don't know. I think, like, could I do my job if I just decided one day that I wasn't going to play any games which had guns in it anymore? And I probably couldn't. I probably couldn't do my job, because I, I couldn't play Spelunky for starters. Couldn't play XCOM. Do you know what I mean? Like, and those are games which I don't even think of as being violent games, really. Yeah, neither of those would have occurred to me, but of course they do. Yeah, yeah. that's crazy. It, it's interesting, isn't it? And and that's something I'm thinking about a little bit in my half-hearted way. But anyway, yes, no, it's it's. It, I can't remember how we got onto this. This has been my my catchphrase for the last three years. <laughs> I'm clearly talking about something, but I can't remember how I started talking about it. We, um, we were talking about parents and parents' relationships to the games. That's how we got onto it. But I'm I'm thrilled that about the tangents. That's that's what I was most looking forward to. I think Christian. <laughs> yeah, I have. Yeah, I have. I have. Um, I'm always good for a tangent. <laughs> uh, well, well, this seems like a, a lovely place to to close up. But if there's anything. <laughs> That kind of hasn't come up. Anything you'd like to mention? Please take this opportunity now. One thing I do want to ask you is: Do you do close-up magic? Do you do the magic with the rubber bands magic? <laughs> it had to someone, be about magic. No, well, someone showed me this the other day, and it was truly magical. In the like, I know that you know everyone knows like coins and cards and blah blah blah. But this guy did a bunch of tricks just using mag, uh, rubber bands, and he yeah. said there is a whole world of close-up magic which is just about rubber bands there is yeah there is and it's amazing like it's often about making it look like the rubber band has gone through a finger do you do any of these i can do like a a, a relatively i say i can do i could do at one point i've not actually tried it for about two or three years so maybe i probably can't do it now but they're, they're all tend to be kind of variations on the linking rings right um and they're 
often about moving fingers in a way that's imperceptible yeah uh, but not imperceptible it's actually sometimes quite blatant but it, it's kind of it, it's one of those things that that your 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 brain just filters out like oh, that's not important so you don't you don't think about the fact that the band was on the second finger and now it's on the third finger all you see I, is the two bands separating you forget to remember yeah right? exactly i love that i love i love oh god i'll tell you the other thing about magic actually we're talking about magic and video games earlier on the one realm where i think they have clear parallels is self-working tricks like what is uncharted if it's not a self-working magic trick you know you that's just... interesting yeah. funnily enough one of the few times that i mean magic has come up on the show a few times with with, with some developers but the one where we really got into it was actually Richard Lamarchand, who, who obviously yeah. worked on Uncharted. So I'm sure that is an aspect of it. I felt that it was Edith Finch as well. Edith Finch, you should really play Edith Finch. As someone who knows about magic, I think you'll get a lot out of it. Uh, Nathan Dighton wrote a beautiful piece about it. He likened it to almost kind of uh, paper, like, uh, pop-up books well let's um I, i'm gonna i'm gonna force in uh, an end point that i can edit around so we can carry on afterwards but i just wanted to uh, was was that like was that okay for you uh christian was that fun that was great <laughs> <laughs>